The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1917, a married couple in their 30s with a love for literature carried out step one of a plan. They walked into a printing supply company store and asked whether the printing press in the window was difficult to operate. They had no experience in publishing, and their attempts to take a course at a printing school had failed, as the course was only offered to trade union apprentices, which they were not. A helpful assistant wearing brown overalls told them that they could certainly teach themselves how to operate the machine, and in fact, it came with a 16-page booklet that would get them started. And so they left the shop 19 pounds lighter money-wise, but many pounds heavier equipment-wise. They set up the hand-printing press on their dining room table in their home. Their home was called Hogarth House, and their new printing company was called Hogarth Press. A nice hobby, a good pastime, a fun endeavor, certainly not much promise in it, one would think. The plan was to do everything themselves, including setting the type, printing the pages, binding the books, and selling subscriptions to the results. The good news for the fledgling press was that the couple brought with them some sweat and brain equity. He was an intelligent and capable man named Leonard Wolfe, and his wife, Virginia, was a genius. We'll have more about the press they put together along with some stories they wrote and published today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you are here. Speaking of glad, how glad should we be that the Wolfs bought and ran the Hogarth Press? I would say very glad. One might think that it was a distraction from Virginia's writing, but it was a welcome distraction, I think. At least that was the goal. That was the plan. Already, Virginia was pretty worn out from the strains of writing and her Depression issues, and Leonard at least believed that it would be good to have something like the press for the two of them to engage in. It was a brilliant idea. It reminds me of that advice that Paul McCartney got from his father-in-law, John Eastman, Linda's dad, when Paul was trying to figure out how to invest his money as he was leaving the Beatles. You should be in a field you know, Eastman said, like songwriting. You're good at that. You know that world. Why not buy a music publishing business that controls the rights to songs? Made a lot of sense. And for the Wolfs, it made sense, too. They knew literature. Virginia had been a star book reviewer for over 10 years, reading a book a week, a newly published book, and making sense of it. She was also a writer herself, though she had not yet written her masterpieces. And there's one other difference we looked at. Mark Twain's efforts to be a publisher about 50 years or so before this one, Twain was motivated by a business model that would help writers retain more of the profits. As we saw, he had a huge initial success publishing the biography of or the autobiography of Ulysses S. Grant, Civil War hero, president, and an engaging writer. It was hard to replicate that success with memoirs of less appealing and less famous people. What the Wolfs faced was different. Their motivation was not a bigger slice of profits. Some of their earliest runs were very small, dozens of copies, maybe a hundred, a hundred and fifty. Virginia was binding these things by herself, at least in the earliest days, sewing the pages together by hand, which she found therapeutic. I am really rather a good binder, she wrote to her brother after taking some bookbinding lessons, and it helped that she loved books. When you truly love reading books, love holding them in your hands, love getting a brand new copy and cracking open the spine, love wandering through a bookstore or a library, well, then there is a special pleasure in making the darn things. Others might knit sweaters or bake pastries or turn table legs on their lathes. Virginia made books. Here was the other big difference for the Wolfs as they started their endeavor. A new era of literature was dawning, modernism, 
with a critical and artistic enthusiasm that was not yet awoken in the public. Works in translation by Russian authors especially were reaching literary London. These were not books for the masses, not yet, but there was a need for them. Enough buyers to be successful, especially when, like Leonard in Virginia, you have two people who are donating their time. And another plus, two people who have a circle of taste-making friends, many of whom are writers themselves. And the trump card, you have an in-house genius. That woman who sews up the bindings also happens to be a writer who will give the press works of her own for the catalog. The Hogarth Press was very successful And its success continues today. It's still in existence, though it's been sold now to a larger company. It's been sold several times and operates now as an imprint. Virginia worked on the books for about 20 years of her life. She enjoyed being a publisher. Success can be measured in many ways. For some printing presses, you'd want to look at number of copies sold or revenue or profits or years in existence. For the Hogarth Press, I'd say we should look at their catalog. Keep in mind that a small press that puts out one masterpiece will brag about that until the end of time. Even publishing minor works by major authors is considered a coup. Here's what the Hogarth Press can offer for its display-slash-trophy case. Works by Catherine Mansfield, T.S. Eliot, including the first English edition of The Wasteland, The First Complete Works of Sigmund Freud in Translation, Poetry by W. H. Auden, Stephen Spender, and C. Day Lewis. They brought out works by Christopher Isherwood, E. M. Forster, Gertrude Stein, Rebecca West, Hugh Walpole. Dostoevsky's The Devils appeared under the Hogarth Press, cranked out by the Hogarth Press, which Virginia co-translated. And of course, there were Virginia's books, Jacob's Room, Orlando, The Waves, and short stories, too, some of which we are going to hear. Let's take a quick break and come back with the story of the very first publication of the Hogarth Press, which included two stories, one by Leonard and one by Virginia. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We are telling the story of the Hogarth Press, which has a grand, distinguished name now, a true pedigree and a century of success behind it. But we are in the year 1917, and none of that has yet come to be. Instead, we have a book reviewer and author, Virginia, and her husband, Leonard, literary types to be sure, with famous friends and obvious intellect and talent, but zero experience publishing a book. They set up the press on their dining room table, and start cranking out the pages. It helps to have almost no overhead, just paper and ink, no typesetters to pay, no bookbinders, no labor costs of any kind, and no authors to pay either. Their very first publication is 32 pages long, two stories, 
Three Jews by Leonard Wolf, followed by The Mark on the Wall by Virginia Wolf. They're doing it all themselves, with one exception. They enlist Dora Carrington to design a few woodcut illustrations. Dora Carrington was a British artist who had trained at the Slade School of Art. Her woodcuts are small but detailed. Virginia liked them quite a bit and wrote a letter on July 13, 1917, in the full flush of the excitement of their new endeavor, in which she says the press is, quote, especially good at printing pictures, and we see that we must make a practice of always having pictures, end quote. There's such a, let's put on a show right here, quality to that comment, as if to say, oh, everyone loves it when when Mark Jr. tap dances, so let's include a tap dancing number, and oh, our friend Julia has such a nice voice, let's make sure we have at least two songs for her to sing. That's the, the feeling I get when I read the letters of Virginia talking about the new press. They enlisted Dora Carrington for the future as well to design covers and more illustrations. They printed 150 copies of two stories, hand-sewn and bound with paper covers. It took two and a half months to complete the print run. But this is the history of literature, not the history of printing presses. So let's turn to the stories. Virginia, interestingly, did not compose her story until they had finished printing Leonard's. That's how long this was taking, how long and laborious. It's kind of astonishing, really. Today, my dear listeners, if you want to start a press, you have tools at your disposal that will make Virginia and Leonard look like coal miners by comparison. They had to do it all by hand, not only without book designing software and not only without a computer, but without electricity. Hand cranked. And yet, in spite of it all, Virginia's story shines through. It's not her finest work, but it's good enough for me to read to you and feel confident that you will enjoy it for reasons I will explain. You might think she's she was distracted by the work of generating the books, too distracted to write really write a great story. Maybe she writes a quick one, a cliche, something easy, but no. I think you'll see that she was already exploring her talent and pointing herself in the direction in which she wanted to go artistically. It's good to see that early on. The press appears to be doing what the Wolfs had hoped, which was to provide a release for Virginia, an outlet, a break from the pressures of writing. Today, she might go teach a spin class or volunteer at the local kindergarten or do some freelance copy editing or business writing or who knows what else she might find to do. But none of that would be better than what she did find because being around literature was also beneficial to her. I don't know that a press today would do it. I think she'd be at her computer sending emails to and fro, working with the text, submitting it. I think it was just the right mix to have the physical paper and covers and typesetting actually to be working with the letters and the words with her hands and sewing. It's the right mix to have that physicality to it, I think. But thank goodness it didn't take over her life completely. As grand as the Hogarth Press became, as important as it has been, we wouldn't want to trade to the Lighthouse or Mrs. Dalloway for it, I don't think so. We are encouraged by this story that we're going to hear, The Mark on the Wall. Leonard's story, Three Jews, has not held up quite as well. I don't think it's earnest and it's competent, but the urgency of its themes has faded with time, and there are some ugly stereotypes that feel almost reflexive, compulsive, as if he were contractually obligated to include physical descriptions of Jews with big noses and so on. I mean, it's more than that. It's, it's not just that. It's actually some pretty ugly stuff, at least in one paragraph. And to his discredit, I guess, or maybe I should say it's somewhat revealing, that when I say it's as if he's contractually obligated, that begs the question, well, contractually, contracted with whom? Because he was, of course, the publisher of his own work. Could print whatever he wanted. Contracted with himself, perhaps, or with the expectations and prejudices of those around him, those he expected to read. This was a pre-Nazi anti-Semitic era when there's enough loathing to go around that it spills into a kind of self-loathing by Wolf, who was, of course, of Jewish ancestry himself, though he had tried to abandon it for a life in English society. And in some ways, 
that had been imposed on him by the milieu of Tony schools and so on. He was a fish out of water all his life. His feelings of being Jewish and Virginia's feelings about being married to him are a whole other topic. This story, Three Jews, is basically the story of what happens to a man, a Jewish man, who holds on to customs and old stubborn tribal allegiances, even at the expense of his family's happiness. It's making the case for tolerance. And it's not easy to say it has a particular point of view because it uses that early 20th century, here's how the story came to me angle. I call it early 20th century because it's the frame used in Heart of Darkness and H.G. Wells stories and so on. You know how it goes. I was on a ship, a crusty old sailor started talking, and this is what he said. It's a story within a story. It gives the author some real advantages. You can set a tone that way. You can say the storyteller spoke in darkness, or it was a rainy night, or none of us breathed a word as we listened. Or here he began to cry, or his voice rose with insistence, all of that. And also, you can provide a bit of commentary. You can say about the storyteller, his views were outdated at best and toxic at worst. If they're If the storyteller says things that are unpalatable, you can distance yourself. The author can be one step further away. Hey, this isn't my point of view. Just to be clear, this is a story I heard from this guy. This guy's the one who holds these views. I'm commenting on that. I see all of that working in Leonard Wolf's story, Three Jews, and I see a a very conventional structure. I'm not going to read the story, but I'm going to start it because it will give you a taste of what I'm talking about and help to set up just how different Virginia Woolf already was in 1917. Her story doesn't work like his. So here we go. The Hogarth Press, in this 32-page booklet, call it a book, that's how they thought of it, although it's also referred to often as a pamphlet, which is not far from the truth. 32 pages is not very big. The cover says two stories. The cover page, said the title page says, Publication number one, two stories, written and presented by Virginia Woolf and L.S. Woolf, Hogarth Press, Richmond, 1917. Open the cover, turn a few more pages, and here we go. Three Jews by Leonard Woolf. It was a Sunday and the first day of spring, the first day on which one felt at any rate spring in the air. It blew in at my window with its warm breath, with its inevitable little touch of sadness. I felt restless, and I had nowhere to go to. Everyone I knew was out of town. I looked out of my window at the black trees breaking into bud, the tulips and the hyacinths that even London could not rob of their reds and blues and yellows, the delicate spring sunshine on the asphalt, and the pale blue sky that the chimney pots broke into. I found myself muttering, damn it, for no very obvious reason. It was spring, I suppose, the first stirring of the blood. I wanted to see clean trees and the sun shine upon grass. I wanted flowers and leaves unsoiled by soot. I wanted to see and smell the earth. Above all, I wanted the horizon. I felt that something was waiting for me beyond the houses and the chimney pots. I should find it where earth and sky meet. I didn't, of course, but I took the train to Kew. If I did not find in Kew the place where earth and sky meet, or even the smell of the earth, I saw at any rate the sun upon the brown bark of trees and the delicate green of grass. It was spring there, English spring with its fresh warm breath, and its pale blue sky above the trees. Yes, the quiet, orderly English spring that embraced and sobered even the florid luxuriance of great flowers bursting in white cascades over strange tropical trees. And the spring had brought the people out into the gardens, the quiet, orderly English people. It was the first stirring of the blood. It had stirred them to come out in couples, in family parties, in tight matronly black dresses, in drab coats and trousers, in dowdy skirts and hats. It had stirred some to come in elegant costumes and morning suits and spats. 
They looked at the flaunting tropical trees and made jokes and chaffed one another and laughed not very loud. They were happy in their quiet, orderly English way, happy in the warmth of the sunshine, happy to be among quiet trees and to feel the soft grass under their feet. They did not run about or shout. They walked slowly, quietly, taking care to keep off the edges of the grass because the notices told them to do so. It was very warm, very pleasant, and very tiring. I wandered out at last through the big gates and was waved by a man with a napkin. He stood on the pavement, through a Georgian house into a garden studded with white-topped tables and dirty, rickety chairs. It was crowded with people, and I sat down at the only vacant table and watched them eating plum cake and drinking tea quietly, soberly, under the gentle apple blossom. A man came up the garden, looking quickly from side to side for an empty place. I watched him in a tired, lazy way. There was a bustle and roll and energy in his walk. I noticed the thickness of his legs above the knee, the arms that hung so loosely and limply by his sides as they do with people who wear loose hanging clothes without sleeves, his dark fat face and the sensual mouth, the great curve of the upper lip and the hanging lower one. A clever face, dark and inscrutable, with its large mysterious eyes and the heavy lids which went into deep folds at the corners. He stopped near my table, looked at the empty chair and then at me, and said, Excuse me, sir, but do you mind my sitting at your table? I noticed the slight thickness of the voice, the overemphasis, and the little note of assertiveness in it. I said I didn't mind at all. He sat down, leaned back in his chair, and took his hat off. He had a high forehead, black hair, and well-shaped, fat hands. Fine day he said. Wonderfully fine day, the finest day I ever remember. Nothing to beat a fine English spring day. I saw the delicate apple blossom and the pale blue sky behind his large dark head. I smiled. He saw the smile, flushed, and then smiled himself. You are amused, he said, still smiling. I believe I know why. Yes, I said, you knew me at once and I knew you. We show up, don't we, under the apple blossom in this sky? It doesn't belong to us. Do you wish it did? Ah, he said seriously, that's the question. Or rather, we don't belong to it. We belong to Palestine still, but I'm not sure that it doesn't belong to us for all that. Well, perhaps your version is truer than mine. I'll take it, but there's still the question— do you wish you belonged to it? He wasn't a bit offended. He tilted back in his chair, put one thumb in the armhole of his waistcoat, and looked round the garden. He showed abominably concentrated, floridly intelligent, in the thin spring air and among the inconspicuous tea drinkers. He didn't answer my question. He was thinking. And when he spoke, he asked another. Do you ever go to synagogue? No. Nor do I, except on Yom Kippur. I still go then every year, pure habit. I don't believe in it, of course. I believe in nothing. You believe in nothing. We're all skeptics. And yet we belong to Palestine still. Funny, ain't it? How it comes out, under the apple blossom and blue sky, as you say, as well as... as among the tombs. Among the tombs? Ah, I was thinking of another man I met. He belongs to Palestine, too. Shall I tell you about him? I said I wished he would. He put his hands in his pockets and began at once. The first time I saw him, I remember the day well, as well as yesterday. There was no apple blossom then. A November day, cold, bitter cold, the coldest day I remember. It was the anniversary of my poor wife's death. She was my first wife, Rebecca. She made me a good wife. I tell you, we were very happy. He took out a white silk pocket handkerchief, opened it with something of a flourish, and blew his nose long and loudly. Then he continued. Okay, that's where we're going to stop reading the story. It goes on and on with the other man the story of the third Jew. The first two are the two that have just met under the apple blossom tree and so on. It's a, you, you see the framing that I'm talking about. 
first we get the weather, then we get a description of the people in the park who are English people. The speaker, the narrator, belongs but doesn't quite belong. He's happy to be there. Then he sits down. He and the other man recognize one another. We're Jewish, aren't we? You and I, how, how much of that do you feel? Here's how much I feel. And now here's the story of a third man, and this is going to, his experience is going to help us situate ourselves. We're not like him. That's kind of the story. We're going to hear the story. You and I aren't going to hear the story. I mean, the reader of three Jews would hear the story at that point. And the third Jew is the, a man who has a, a, it's the story of his wife's death and his children and their marriage to Christians and so on. The point is made. Clinging to tradition will lead to unhappiness. It's Tevye without a Tevye epiphany. Tevye where the author and reader see what Tevye should do. The speakers in the story, the two men who are exchanging the story, implicitly see what Tevye should do, but Tevye never quite does. You're welcome to read the story if you'd like, and to see it's available on the internet, and you can see just how far it delves into stereotypes and so on. And if you're a historian, it might interest you to see what Leonard Wolf was thinking at the time, but that's not why we're here today. I wanted you to have a bit of context to hear that very conventional setup for a story so that you have a bit of context for, for, for uh, Virginia's story, which is very different. That story comes next in the book. It's a 32-page book with two stories, one of them very different from the other. First one, very conventional, then Virginia Woolf's story which comes next in the book and next in our discussion. Let's take a quick break and then hear the mark on the wall. The Mark on the Wall by Virginia Woolf Perhaps it was the middle of January in the present year that I first looked up and saw the mark on the wall. In order to fix a date, it is necessary to remember what one saw. So now I think of the fire, the steady film of yellow light upon the page of my book, the three chrysanthemums in the round glass bowl on the mantelpiece. Yes, it must have been the winter time, and we had just finished our tea for I remember that I was smoking a cigarette when I looked up and saw the mark on the wall for the first time. I looked up through the smoke of my cigarette, and my eye lodged for a moment upon the burning coals, and that old fancy of the crimson flag flapping from the castle tower came into my mind, and I thought of the cavalcade of red knights riding up the side of the black rock. Rather to my relief, the sight of the mark interrupted the fancy— for it is an old fancy, an automatic fancy, made as a child, perhaps. The mark was a small round mark, black upon the white wall, about six or seven inches above the mantelpiece. How readily our thoughts swarm upon a new object, lifting it a little way as ants carry a blade of straw so feverishly and then leave it. If that mark was made by a nail, it can't have been for a picture, it must have been for a miniature." the miniature of a lady with white powdered curls, powder-dusted cheeks, and lips like red carnations. A fraud, of course, for the people who had this house before us would have chosen pictures in that way, an old picture for an old room. That is the sort of people they were, very interesting people, and I think of them so often in such queer places, because one will never see them again, never know what happened next. She wore a flannel dog collar round her throat, and he drew posters for an oatmeal company. And they wanted to leave this house because they wanted to change their style of furniture, so he said. And he was in process of saying that, in his opinion, art should have ideas behind it when we were torn asunder. As one is torn from the old lady about to pour out tea and the young man about to hit the tennis ball in the back garden of the suburban villa, as one rushes past in the train. But as for that mark, I'm not sure about it. I don't believe it was made by a nail after all. It's too big, too round for that. I might get up, but if I got up and looked at it, ten to one I shouldn't be able to say for certain, because once the thing's done, no one ever knows how it happened. Oh, dear me, the mystery of life. 
the inaccuracy of thought, the ignorance of humanity. To show how very little control of our possessions we have, what an accidental affair this living is after all our civilization, let me just count over a few of the things lost in one lifetime. Beginning, for that seems always the most mysterious of all losses, what cat would gnaw, what rat would nibble, three pale blue canisters of bookbinding tools. Then there were the bird cages, the iron hoops, the steel skates, the Queen Anne coal scuttle, the bagatelle board, the hand organ, all gone, and jewels too, opals and emeralds, they lie about the root of turnips. What a scraping, pairing affair it is, to be sure. The wonder is that I've any clothes on my back, that I sit surrounded by solid furniture at this moment. Why, if one wants to compare life to anything— One must liken it to being blown through the tube at fifty miles an hour, landing at the other end without a single hairpin in one's hair. Shot out at the feet of God entirely naked, tumbling head over heels in the asphodel meadows like brown paper parcels pitched down a chute in the post office, with one's hair flying back like the tail of a racehorse. Yes, that seems to express the rapidity of life the perpetual waste and repair, also casual, also haphazard. But after life, the slow pulling down of thick green stalks so that the cup of the flower as it turns over deluges one with purple and red light. Why, after all, should one not be born there as one is born here, helpless, speechless, unable to focus one's eyesight, groping at the roots of the grass, at the toes of the giants. As for saying which are trees and which are men and women, or whether there are such things, that one won't be in a condition to do for fifty years or so. There will be nothing but spaces of light and dark, intersected by thick stalks, and rather higher up, perhaps, rose-shaped blots of an indistinct color, dim pinks and blues, which will, as time goes on, become more definite, become I don't know what. And yet, that mark on the wall is not a hole at all. It may even be caused by some round black substance, such as a small rose leaf left over from the summer. And I, not being a very vigilant housekeeper, look at the dust on the mantelpiece, for example, the dust which, so they say, buried Troy three times over, only fragments of pots utterly refusing annihilation, as one can believe, But I know a housekeeper, a woman with the profile of a policeman, those little round buttons marked even upon the edge of her shadow, a woman with a broom in her hand, a thumb on picture frames, an eye under beds, and she talks always of art. She is coming nearer and nearer, and now, pointing to certain spots of yellow rust on the fender, she becomes so menacing that to oust her, I shall have to end her by taking action. I shall have to get up and see for myself what that mark. But no, I refuse to be beaten. I will not move. I will not recognize her. See, she fades already. I am very nearly rid of her and her insinuations, which I can hear quite distinctly. Yet she has about her the pathos of all people who wish to compromise. And why should I resent the fact that she has a few books in her house, a picture or two? But what I really resent is that she resents me, life being an affair of attack and defense after all. Another time I will have it out with her. Not now. She must go now. The tree outside the window taps very gently on the pane. I want to think quietly, calmly, spaciously, never to be interrupted, never to have to rise from my chair, to slip easily from one thing to another, without any sense of hostility or obstacle. I want to sink deeper and deeper away from the surface with its hard, separate facts. To steady myself, let me catch hold of the first idea that passes. Shakespeare. Well, he will do as well as another. A man who sat himself solidly in an armchair and looked into the fire so... A shower of ideas fell perpetually from some very high heaven down through his mind. He leant his forehead on his hand. 
and people looking in through the open door, for the scene is supposed to take place on a summer's evening. But how dull this is, this historical fiction. It doesn't interest me at all. I wish I could hit upon a pleasant track of thought, a track indirectly reflecting credit upon myself, for those are the, are the pleasantest thoughts, and very frequent even in the minds of modest, mouse-colored people, who believe genuinely that they dislike to hear their own praises. They are not thoughts directly praising oneself. That is the beauty of them. They are thoughts like this. And then I came into the room. They were discussing botany. I said how I'd seen a flower growing on a dust heap on the site of an old house in Kingsway. The seed, I said, must have been sown in the reign of Charles I. What flowers grew in the reign of Charles I? I asked. But I don't remember the answer. Tall flowers with purple tassels to them, perhaps, and so it goes on. All the time I'm dressing up the figure of myself in my own mind, lovingly, stealthily, not openly adoring it, for if I did that I should catch myself out, and stretch my hand at once for a book in self-protection. Indeed, it is curious how instinctively one protects the image of oneself from idolatry or any other handling that could make it ridiculous or too unlike the original to be believed in any longer? Or is it not so very curious after all? It is a matter of great importance. Suppose the looking-glass smashes, the image disappears, and the romantic figure with the green of forest depths all about it is there no longer. But only that shell of a person, which is seen by other people. What an airless, shallow, bald, prominent world it becomes. A world not to be lived in. As we face each other in omnibuses and underground railways, we are looking into the mirror. That accounts for the expression in our vague and almost glassy eyes. And the novelist in future will realize more and more the importance of these reflections, for of course there is not one reflection but an almost infinite number. Those are the depths they will explore, those the phantoms they will pursue leaving the description of reality more and more out of their stories, taking a knowledge of it for granted, as the Greeks did in Shakespeare, perhaps. But these generalizations are very worthless. The military sound of the word is enough. It recalls leading articles, cabinet ministers, a whole class of things indeed, which as a child one thought the thing itself, the standard thing, the real thing, from which one could not depart, save at the risk of nameless damnation. Generalizations bring back somehow Sunday in London, Sunday afternoon walks, Sunday luncheons, and also ways of speaking of the dead, clothes and habits, like the habit of sitting all together in one room until a certain hour, although nobody liked it. There was a rule for everything. The rule for tablecloths at that particular period was that they should be made of tapestry, with little yellow compartments marked upon them, such as you may see in photographs of the carpets in the corridors of the royal palaces. Tablecloths of a different kind were not real tablecloths. How shocking and yet how wonderful it was to discover that these real things, Sunday luncheons, Sunday walks, country houses, and tablecloths, were not entirely real, were indeed half phantoms, and the damnation which visited the disbeliever in them was only a sense of illegitimate freedom. What now takes the place of those things, I wonder, those real standard things? Men, perhaps, should you be a woman, the masculine point of view which governs our lives, which sets the standard, which establishes Whitaker's table of precedency, which has become, I suppose, since the war, half a phantom to many men and women, which soon one may hope will be laughed into the dustbin where the phantoms go, the mahogany sideboards and Landseer prints, gods and devils, hell and so forth, leaving us all with an intoxicating sense of illegitimate freedom, if freedom exists. In certain lights, that mark on the wall seems actually to project from the wall, nor is it entirely circular. I cannot be sure, but it seems to cast a perceptible shadow, suggesting that if I ran my finger down that strip of the wall, 
it would at a certain point mount and descend a small tumulus, a smooth tumulus like those barrows on the South Downs, which are, they say, either tombs or camps. Of the two, I should prefer them to be tombs, desiring melancholy like most English people, and finding it natural at the end of a walk to think of the bones stretched beneath the turf. There must be some book about it. Some antiquary must have dug up those bones and given them a name. What sort of man is an antiquary, I wonder? Retired colonels, for the most part, I dare say, leading parties of aged laborers to the top here, examining clods of earth and stone, and getting into correspondence with the neighboring clergy, which being opened at breakfast time gives them a feeling of importance, and the comparison of arrowheads necessitates cross-country journeys to the county towns, an agreeable necessity both to them and to their elderly wives, who wish to make plum jam or to clean out the study and have every reason for keeping that great question of the camp or the tomb in perpetual suspension, while the colonel himself feels agreeably philosophic in accumulating evidence on both sides of the question. It is true that he does finally incline to believe in the camp, and, being opposed, casts all his arrowheads into one scale, and, being still further opposed, indicts a pamphlet, which he is about to read at the quarterly meeting of the local society, when a stroke lays him low, and his last conscious thoughts are not of wire or child, but of the camp, and that arrowhead there which is now in the case at the local museum, together with the hand of a Chinese murderess, a handful of Elizabethan nails, a great many Tudor clay pipes, a piece of Roman pottery, and the wine glass that Nelson drank out of, proving I really don't know what. No, no, nothing is proved, nothing is known, and if I were to get up at this very moment and ascertain that the mark on the wall is really, what shall we say, the head of a gigantic old nail driven in two hundred years ago, which has now, owing to the patient attrition of many generations of housemaids, revealed its head above the coat of paint, and is taking its first view of modern life in the sight of a white-walled, firelit room, what should I gain? Knowledge? Matter for further speculation? I can think sitting still as well as standing up. And what is knowledge? What are our learned men, save the descendants of witches and hermits who crouched in caves and in woods brewing herbs, interrogating shrew mice, and writing down the language of the stars? And the less we honor them as our superstitions dwindle and our respect for beauty and health of mind increases, yes, one could imagine a very pleasant world, a quiet Spacious world with the flowers so red and blue in the open fields. A world without professors or specialists or housekeepers with the profiles of policemen. A world which one could slice with one's thought as a fish slices the water with his fin, grazing the stems of the water lilies and hanging suspended over nests of white sea eggs. How peaceful it is down here, rooted into the center of the world and gazing up through the gray waters with their sudden gleams of light and their reflections. If it were not for Whitaker's almanac, if it were not for the table of precedency, I must jump up and see for myself what that mark on the wall really is. A nail, a rose leaf, a crack in the wood. Here is nature once more at her old game of self-preservation. This train of thought, she perceives, is threatening mere waste of energy, even some collision with reality. For who will ever be able to lift a finger against Whitaker's table of precedency? The Archbishop of Canterbury is followed by the Lord High Chancellor. The Lord High Chancellor is followed by the Archbishop of York. Everybody follows somebody. Such is the philosophy of Whitaker, and the great thing is to know who follows whom. Whitaker knows, and let that, so nature counsels, comfort you, instead of enraging you. And if you can't be comforted, if you must shatter this hour of peace, think of the mark on the wall. I understand nature's game, her prompting to take action as a way of ending any thought that threatens to excite or to pain. 
Hence, I suppose, comes our slight contempt for men of action, men, we assume, who don't think. Still, there's no harm in putting a full stop to one's disagreeable thoughts by looking at a mark on the wall. Indeed, now that I have fixed my eyes upon it, I feel I have grasped a plank in the sea. I feel a satisfying sense of reality, which at once turns the two archbishops and the Lord High Chancellor to the shadows of shades. Here is something definite, something real. Thus, waking from a midnight dream of horror, one hastily turns on the light and lies quiescent, worshipping the chest of drawers, worshipping solidity, worshipping reality, worshipping the impersonal world, which is a proof of some existence other than ours. That is what one wants to be sure of. Wood is a pleasant thing to think about. It comes from a tree. And trees grow, and we don't know how they grow. For years and years they grow without paying any attention to us, in meadows, in forests, and by the side of rivers, all things one likes to think about. The cows swish their tails beneath them on hot afternoons. They paint rivers so green that when a moorhen dives, one expects to see its feathers all green when it comes up again. I like to think of the fish, balanced against the stream like flags blown out, and of water beetles slowly raising domes of mud upon the bed of the river. I like to think of the tree itself. First, the close, dry sensation of being wood. Then there is the grinding of the storm. Then the slow, delicious ooze of sap. I like to think of it, too, on winter's nights, standing in the empty field with all leaves close-furled, nothing tender exposed to the iron bullets of the moon, a naked mast upon an earth that goes tumbling, tumbling all night long. The song of birds must sound very loud and strange in June, and how cold the feet of insects must feel upon it, as they make laborious progresses up the cressels of the bark, or sun themselves upon the thin green awning of the leaves and look straight in front of them with huge diamond-cut red eyes. One by one the fibers snap beneath the immense cold pressure of the earth. Then the last storm comes, and, falling, the highest branches drive deep into the ground again. Even so, life isn't done with. There are a million patient, watchful lives still for a tree, all over the world, in bedrooms, in ships, on the pavement, lining rooms where men and women sit after tea smoking their cigarettes. It is full of peaceful thoughts, happy thoughts, this tree. I should like to take each one separately, but something is getting in the way. Where was I? What has it all been about? A tree? A river? The Downs? Whitaker's Almanac? The Fields of Asphodel? I can't remember a thing. Everything's moving, falling, slipping, vanishing. There is a vast upheaval of matter. Someone is standing over me and saying, I'm going out to buy a newspaper. Yes? Though it's no good buying newspapers. Nothing ever happens. Curse this war. God damn this war. All the same, I don't see why we should have a snail on our wall. Ah, the mark on the wall. For it was a snail. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Leonard and Virginia Woolf. Oddly, that's not the last story by Virginia to feature a snail. Not the last, and perhaps not the best. We are going to resume our look at the Hogarth Press in our next episode, or maybe the one after that. And we will hear the story that finally broke loose, the one that transformed the Hogarth Press from an interesting hobby into a serious publisher. It was, unsurprisingly, a story by Virginia that did the trick. Genius has its privileges. Speaking of genius, sometimes the absence of genius can be inspiring, too, to borrow from the great philosopher Bob Euchre. Anyone can see, can succeed if they happen to be a genius. 
To succeed in the total absence of genius is a triumph of the human spirit. To succeed or at least endure or persist or at least just to show up. How low, how low do we have to go before we get to where you recognize who I'm talking about? Your humble podcaster, people. All the way from genius to showing up. Is that low enough for you? Do I have to go into the ditch again? <sighs> okay, fine. Speaking of low, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.